Hi, Michael. Thank you for joining our North Acre at Home podcast series. You and your practice are behind some of London's most iconic buildings of the last decade. Please, can you tell us about your journey into architecture and the ethos of Squire and Partners? Okay, well, it starts with my father being an architect, and so I was born and brought up with architecture day in, day out, whether I liked it or not. As it happens, I do, I absolutely love what I do, but there's a long, obviously, history in my life of being involved with architecture. I studied architecture at Cambridge, and I met two who are still two of my closest friends, Edward Hill and Charles Dorin. And fairly soon after we left Cambridge, we started a small practice called Hill Squire Dorin. That was in the early 70s when everything was the barber boom, boom, boom. And by 1974, it had all exploded. We'd had the three-day week and we had an enormous crash. So we learned early that you can go up and down quite quickly. And that crash basically wiped out Hill Square Dorin. But I continued from 1976 with my own practice, me and one other person in a basement. Um, and we did people's house conversions and very modest work. But over 45 years, we have grown and developed and evolved. And I think that's what I feel about our ethos and our design and our firm is that it has always been evolution rather than revolution. And so we like to think that our buildings are kind of considered in where they are. They're not trying to be, you've used the word iconic, I don't think they're trying to be iconic or not in the way that people do who design very extravagantly shaped or organized buildings. We don't do what I call strawberries. We do buildings that are really kind of steeped in where they are and what they are. We have a uh, a little symbol that represents how we feel about architecture um, and it's the tree and the branches of the future and the roots of the past. You don't turn the tree upside down and replicate the past because trees don't work very well upside down. But whatever we design, we like to feel is rooted in where it is in any kind, maybe a quite complex or abstract way, a story, but it's something to do with where it is placed. And normally that is concerned also with materials, scale, proportion. Those things are important to relating to where a building is, but not in terms of copying detail or copying the past. It sounds like you've had quite a journey and some pretty exciting times. So before we touch a little bit more on that, could we just, just consider the, the current circumstances? We've seen the fantastic visors and scrubs that your team have created for the NHS. Can you tell us a little bit more about those and, and perhaps what other stories of community have inspired you during lockdown? Yes, it was interesting because model shop was the one part of our business that could not work from home. And at that moment when we were all required to work from home, we principally started with the notion that uh, they would be furloughed. It was then emphasized that if you were doing furlough, you couldn't work for the firm, but you could work for charity. And we've always liked to kind of make some contribution, put something back into a life that we've 
uh, been successful in and, and had a lot of return from. And obviously, the NHS was the charity of the moment, if you like, and obviously something that one would like to help with. And there was this desperate need for these visors and scrubs. And we have uh, sort of 3D machines that we can use. They give you all the settings. We actually go through a charity who give you a very specific specification for what they want. And we felt that that was something we could so simply do from our model shop that made a contribution. And we also have Isabel Fletcher, who's a textile designer, and she designs beautiful carpets and clothing and other sort of textile-related things and she has helped us in making the scrubs and she actually we've taken her off furlough because she's full-time on this now and we really enjoy it the degree to which we've seen this in other people is almost infinite there seem to be so many people it's the one thing you can say for the whole process it has made people so much more generous than usual in trying to find things. So many people have volunteered their time to uh, help with the NHS or do whatever people uh, want and require. We, one particular one, our Derwent London, who are a client of ours, who have for the next six, nine months provided flats and residential accommodation in one of their developments for the NHS. And then they asked all the architects who worked with them because the flats were a little bit bare to do, could, could they send any sketches or pictures or things like that framed for them to use, which we uh, participated in. But there are so many examples of that. And I think it's a very positive aspect of what has happened. It's it's been wonderful to see and and just so so important and so well done for the the contribution. If we could just move on to Northacre and your practice is behind both of the Northacre new developments, the Broadway and Number One Palace Street. These developments are steeped in history, both themselves and their surroundings. How did this influence your design specifically for the Broadway? Well, as I've said already, your words steeped in history are absolutely the sort of focus of the architectural language we try and generate at Squire and Partners. So we're always looking for connections to the past. Obviously, at Palace Street, it's fairly clear in that we're working with an existing building and the new building is a reinterpretation of that sort of London classical language. When we came to Broadway, the clues in the local area weren't so obvious, but there is the one wonderful, iconic Charles Horden, grade one. Uh, it's the building above the tube station, 55 Broadway, which is, I think it was built 1927, 1929. It's a classic 1930s building, very simple architecture, quite complex form, uh, but then decorated uh, with a whole series of wonderful sculptures and some of the greatest sculptors of their time, Epstein, Henry Moore, and many others. And there is sort of then that rich layer of sort of detail that is something to do with Art Deco and that period in time. And I think unusually for us, we were looking to do something slightly more 
abstract in terms of an external design, uh, something that had sort of pattern and graphic language in its exterior appearance. And that is all drawn from not only this connection to the 30s through the Broadway building, but also our client, Niccolo's aspiration for the building to be about fashion, art, design. 30s, I think, was something he was interested in himself. And I think this building is as near to iconic as we go in our architecture in terms of being something uh, that, that has quite a sort of startling and unusual appearance. I think you may have answered my, my next question about the Broadway and how, how sort of it references Art Deco, unless there's anything else you'd want to add to that. Well, I, I, th I find Art Deco a fascinating sort of architectural period and style because I think it was until recently when we began to engage with decoration again, the whole of the sort of 20th century and, and probably even well, the whole of the 20th century anyway, or the latter half of it, was concerned with the kind of reaction to the ornate decoration of Victorian architecture. It was all about the house is a machine for living in, which is called Museum Mies van der Rohe, and it's pared down to its minimal and decoration is despised. But Art Deco was kind of the last architectural style in that way that was interested in decoration, was interested in that sort of external detail and appearance. And they did it, what is unusual about it, rather than sort of historically, it's, it's, it's cupids and flowers and things like that that are decorating buildings. They did their decoration in a very contemporary way. And that graphic design, I think, uh, had a big influence on how we would then approach these buildings. It also, I think, Art Deco sort of represents the 20s, the sort of roaring 20s, um, which is, of course, quite an interesting little analogy for where we may be in the next 10 years. They went mad after their Spanish flu, which killed 50 million people. They lived life to the full, so let's hope we can do the same. <laughs> Perhaps we can all go back in time. That wouldn't be such a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> so if we just look at this pandemic, actually, um, as we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel, what lasting influences do you think that COVID-19 will have on architecture, specifically in relation to residential development? I think it'll have more influence on office development, probably, than residential. The only thing I would say is that buildings probably take up to about 10 years to bring on to site, or certainly five. COVID has lasted five months, not five years. Buildings also probably remain for 75 years at least. I mean, many much longer than that. And the last flu epidemic, pandemic we had was 100 years ago. So I don't really think... I think it's a bit early to say that COVID is going to change the design of buildings. But what I think it will do is it will push and nudge design in a direction in which I think it's been going anyway. And I would say that 
related a lot to the sort of live-work balance as perceived by the millennial, which is live-work balance, live up here, work down there, I think. But, and people want more flexibility in their lives and people want to sort of blur the difference between living and working. And I think that's been happening anyway. And COVID will have given that a nudge because we've all learned we can work at home. We all can conduct Zoom meetings just about. And I think that it will therefore move on something that I think has been happening already. Employers will obviously observe that, you know, they could put at least half of their workforce at home and not pay anything for rent and rates. They will be tempted by that. But I also think, you know, computers can work wherever you want them. Human beings do need interaction and connection. And I don't think it's going to be just as easy as saying, well, we'll all work from home now. I think we'll all get driven absolutely barking mad. And, and I think it will be very unhealthy. But there will be something occurring in that balance. And that, if you then move it across to residential, has an influence on residential. Because I think if more people are going to have to accept they work at home, then homes are going to have to provide more space and accommodation for work to be carried out in them. And there may even come a moment when the employer has to make a contribution towards the home because obviously he's now saving all that rent he was paying out to work in an office. And that might mean uh, that, that, that the financial means are there to have more generous homes but then the other side to all of that is that we've got a housing crisis and we've got to build a lot of homes and probably we don't want them all to get too big or we won't have sufficient space. So it's quite a sort of complicated subject at the end of the day. Um, but I think COVID on its own, it's two years, it will have gone and we'll have all forgotten about it. And we'll be wondering what was that all about? So I think it's a bit early to say we're redesigning all the buildings. Yeah, well, it sounds like, I mean, you're, you've got your award-winning office, the department store in, in Brixton, so you started the whole mixed use a, a while ago. And I guess with the Broadway, it's very much um, Northacre moving into these mixed use buildings. And I guess you've probably answered that there is benefits for users and, and people are sort of growing that way anyway, aren't they? So that they can um, look at creating this wider community with office retail, public space, haven't they, really? Uh, well... I think mixed use is absolutely vital to residential. I mean, it doesn't happen as often as I would love to see it happening. But what we have to try to avoid building, I think, is kind of fenced off defensive housing estates, which are really dormitories that you just live in, you go somewhere else. Once you've put shops and cinemas and offices and residential all in one place, you create vitality and, and you animate the location. It can become a sort of centre for the local neighbourhood. It's, it's giving something out rather than just, I live here and I've got some gates. But more than that, it's also sustainable in that the more people who can live and work and shop and play uh, within short distance of each other, which doesn't mean they can't travel for their leisure elsewhere but at least they can make far less use of of public transport and cars and and work within their immediate environment so i think 
everything in my mind pushes towards mixed use wherever possible. I think probably there's two key points there, isn't there? That it's the community you're creating with what you're establishing around them, as well as location, really. Now, because of perhaps one thing that people, there's an importance in regard to being able to be near where you're working, maybe cycling, walking to work. That yeah. Kind of yeah, I agree with that. So if we were thinking ahead, what, what do you think will be the biggest design trends of the next decade? Have you got any thoughts on that? I think basically we will be led by the need for sustainability. Uh, we will also, I think, very heavily be led by the need to not only think of sustainability in terms of what a building costs to run or what a building um, is using in terms of energy to run, but also in terms of the embodied energy in creating the new building. Um, I think that will mean more and more, wherever we can, we'll be trying to reuse the existing buildings on a site. And I think often, I mean, nobody loved the department store before we went to it. It wasn't listed or anything, but you can transform a building. And uh, I think there will be more and more recognition of that where you've got decent ceiling height. That's always the impediment, I think. So reusing buildings. Uh, I think also people will start to think about the materials and the structure of a new building they're creating and think about whether when that building is redundant, they can be reused as things that can be used to fabricate another building the next time around. So it's recycling, um, I think, is, is very important. The next thing I would say is external spaces. I think, obviously, part of what has come out of this is you don't want to be in a tiny little piece of accommodation with no outside space. And my little passion for all of this is roofs. I think every roof in London, it should almost be obligatory that you make it into a garden. Um, we have all of this space, you know, five, six stories up above the ground. And mainly, certainly in newer buildings, it's just got sort of plant and equipment and uh, a sort of rather nasty roof finish and we can play up there we can garden we can have allotments we can exercise we can and so so the use of roofs I, th I think it should be an automatic planning consent if you want to make your roof into a garden space and it can be safe you can wall it and a bit like the roof gardens on top of uh, what is it Derry and Tom's I think it's a, it's a fabulous idea, actually, isn't it? Like, so you're basically, we're, we're heading heading to the roof, but we can still get that beautiful green spaces. And I mean, I know there's some people that even seem to grow local produce up there when they have restaurants yeah. down below, don't they? Yeah, yeah, no, but I think that's all great. Little, little local plots. I would finally also say that sooner or later, we've all talked about it for 100 years, Prefabrication has got to take a, a more and more serious part in the construction of buildings. We can't go on. We're dinosaurs on building sites, the way we construct things. And it isn't easy or it would have happened sooner. And it doesn't mean that the buildings have to lack quality or design or, or you know, motor cars are prefabricated. Most things are prefabricated. And we, uh, we have to embrace that more and more. And I think that will be important to design in the future. Yeah. 
if we just move back on just to just a couple of questions about the remote working and I was going to ask you, how do you think COVID-19 will positively change the way you and your practice work? Well, I think the only thing I can say is that it will make us really value the experience of working together, and particularly in our building, which I think is sort of almost set up, not deliberately, as a sort of post-COVID building, you've got a bar, restaurant, terrace at the top, you've got event spaces below, all our layout of the building is to do with people communicating and connecting, we don't pack as many desks as we can in one place. And and I think when we've done, at the moment, there are quite a lot of people, I think, saying, well, I quite like working from home, the sun's out, we're all allowed to go outside, I can work late and have fun in the day, it all seems quite attractive. But I think the time will come when they've had enough of it. It's just you and your computer in your home is not enough. You have to see a wider picture of life. And I think I will really, and we all will come to really appreciate the value of working together and communicating with each other. Yes, I, I, I agree. I think that, that it sounds like you've been a visionary in regard to your, your office space. You could almost predict what was coming. <laughs> but also at the same time, I think we, we all like the remote working for a little while. But as you say, we tend to be naturally creatures of, of social interaction. So, um, yeah, so We are maybe, human beings. We're not computers. We just have to remember that. Yes. So it's perhaps not- it's going to be a balance now. Yeah. Yeah. A couple more questions on that. What what would you say you've sort of enjoyed most then about working from home? I I I think the single real asset of working at home is cutting out all the travelling. I mean, the commuting, the diving down into the tube and back out the other end for a meeting. I know. So every meeting is an hour apart with some rather miserable grimy travel in between and it is a great thing that we'll have this meeting and five minutes later we'll I'll be talking to someone else and it that works really well and I actually find these sort of zoom meetings very effective generally speaking because people rather than sort of wandering into the meeting room making themselves a coffee chatting away we get on with it you know we're, we're, there's nothing else to do we get on with it and I think that's very positive and I have really come to enjoy my home. I mean, I have a lovely home, but I work like a dog and we have a little house in the country and we go away quite a bit at the weekend. So I haven't really kind of engaged with it in the way that I do now, and particularly our garden, which is um, at this time of year, it's been such a ridiculous, they had wonderful rain in the early months. They've then had this incredible weather we've all enjoyed and just watching. I think when I first went into lockdown, there weren't any leaves on the trees. By now, it's just a mass of green and it's been a great pleasure to enjoy that. I think we've had the time and also a little bit of sunshine has, has been yes. lovely. But, uh, but I think t- time is very important because this thing has happened every year, obviously spring, um, and I've known that it had happened, and that, that it, but, but being having the time, spending more time actually watching it happen because you know, 10 hours of the day, I'd have been out somewhere else, but I'm here all the time. And I think that it's, it's been quite unusual. 
I was going to just ask you what most you're looking forward to doing after lockdown. Have you had any thoughts on that? Well, it'll just be obviously having far too much to drink with my family and my friends and probably in the restaurant on top of our office in Brixton. But I just can't wait to get out there and socialise again. It's as simple as that. Michael, thank you so much for making the time. It's been really interesting to hear your journey and and really inspiring. So very much appreciate you joining us.